We'll hear argument first this morning in case 08-1402, Burgess versus Smith. Mr. Ristosha. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, this is really a case about the law of habeas corpus for this murder conviction that was obtained in the Michigan courts. The issue is whether the Michigan Supreme Court unreasonably applied clearly established Supreme Court precedent in rejecting Mr. Smith's claim that his jury was not drawn from a fair cross-section of the community. The Michigan Supreme Court did not act unreasonably in concluding that there was no unconstitutional underrepresentation and that there was no systematic exclusion. This Court's decision in Duren did not require a different result on either point, and this Court should reverse the Sixth Circuit. I think it's important to note that there are two prongs at issue, the fair and reasonable representation prong and the systematic exclusion prong. And it's also significant to understand that the disparities at issue here are relatively small, that the time period at issue runs from from April of 1993 to October of 1993, where there was information about, for those six months for which the processes at play uh, were measured. And the percentage of African Americans that appeared in the veneers during that time period was, they comprised 6% of the veneers, where the jury-eligible population was 7.28%. So, you're, so there was a 1.28% absolute disparity during this six-month time period. That can also be measured as an 18% comparative disparity. Now, if you compare that to the disparities that are issue in, at issue in Duran, they really have a magnitude of difference, that the disparities in Duran involve the exclusion of women in Missouri, where they, they comprised, women comprised 54% of the population, and only 14.5 percent of the veneers over an eight-month period of time. When I, I don't know if this is relevant or how to use it, but years ago I took a course in this kind of thing at the Kennedy School when I was teaching, and they said the only way you can figure out what, what's what here is you use something called binomial theorem, and you, you have to have, a, like, urns, and you imagine that there's an urn with a 1,000 balls and 60 of them are red and 940 are black, and then you select them at random and uh, in 12 at a time. You know, fill 12, fill 100 with 12 in each. Now, when we tried to do that just for the interest of it, I, I found that you'd expect with these numbers something like a third to a half of juries would have at least one black person on it. Uh, now, that may be wrong, because I'm not a mathematician, but, but, but putting that together, it looks as if there is pretty big disparity. On the no. other hand, that isn't what they testified to. So I guess you're going to tell me just ignore it and uh, forget it. Well, if you're looking at the Michigan Supreme Court decision, I think it's important to note that it's not just that it would have to be incorrect. It would have to be objectively unreasonable under the EDPA standard. That what's at issue here is, did the Michigan Supreme Court unreasonably apply no, I mean, it's the only way to do it that the statistician stays with these urns, which I guess they have computer programs for. Well, I, I don't know, in other words, and uh, maybe I should just, I hate to write something if, like it's saying two and two is six. But, but we don't have any urns here. No. <laughs> oh, you can skip it if you want. If there's any comment, fine. I think your point was that Duran was quite different in the numbers. Yes. Starting out with women, 54 percent of the population, <coughs> and then dwindled to 14.5 percent uh, of the jurors, available jurors. Yes, Ron. I guess the point is, just following up, it's not that you're going to say 2 plus 2 is 6. I suppose under EDPA, all you have to do is say 2 plus 2 is somewhere between three and five, right? <laughs> right, that it's not unreasonable. I, and I think the, the best evidence of the fact that this decision was not unreasonable is I, in the blue brief, uh, I put together a table of what the other circuits have done with comparable statistical disparities. And it runs from the First Circuit through the Tenth Circuit. I have seven circuits' worth of opinions. And, of course, there really are additional cases if you examine this. And if you look at the kinds of disparities that have been examined by other courts on May I interrupt with this question that goes both to what Justice Ginsburg asked and, and the other. Should we treat uh, all uh, areas the same depending, say, is the, the disparity between a, 
uh, a jurisdiction which has only three or four percent of a minority should be treated similarly to uh, a, a jurisdiction where they have 30 or 40 percent? Well, the, the, in my view, the, this Court really didn't provide guidance in Duran about how to should be measured. In fact, Duran doesn't specify what kind of measurement tool should be used for examining disparity. But isn't it perfectly obvious that you can have dramatic differences where you only have a very small percentage, as in, in Grand Rapids, for example, and where you have a major percentage, as you did in Durham? Well, I think that's right. And, and that's one of the reasons that on direct review, the courts are virtually unanimous in rejecting these kind of small disparities. So if you look at the table on pages 32 and 33, the circuits on direct review that were most comparable with a Second Circuit decision in which the percentage of the distinct group in the community was 7.08 percent, and in the jury pool it was 5.0 percent. But, but I suppose the thrust of Justice Stevens' question was that if you have a very small population uh, that we're concerned with, then the disparity can be very substantial, especially if you use the comparative disparity. That's right. That the in, in, and, and, and I, I think at least. I was interested in that aspect of his question. Well, it's kind of the first matter. It seems like this Court doesn't have to really reach that hard question insofar as the Michigan Supreme Court's decision is entitled to deference under EDPA, meaning — But we have a half hour. I'd kind of like to know. Okay. No, I understand. I understand. I just want to make that as kind of a a first point. Now, for the second point, it seems to me that the absolute disparity test is the better measure for examining examining these questions. And the reason for that is that — it objectively captures the number of missing jurors that are part of the veneer. But, Whereas you, but the, your test is 10 percent, and if you have a minority, what is it here, 7 point, whatever it is, 7, 7. It's under 10 percent. That would mean that a, a district is free to just disregard all the people who are under 10 percent of the population. The, the 10 percent test is not really necessarily tied to the absolute disparity. In other words, this Court could conclude that the absolute disparity test is the better test without using that 10 percent threshold. The reason I suggest the 10 percent threshold is that's really what's happening on the ground in the federal courts. It's very hard to find a case in which You would suggest that in a population that has 9 percent of any group, protected group, that if they didn't have one person serve on a jury for a year of that group, that that would not, under an absolute disparity test using the 10 percent figure, that would not give rise to any kind of suspicion? That's right. Under, if it would the court not adopted the Duran second prompt. That's right. If the court Does adopted that make any sense to you? The, it reflects the actual practice of the courts because of the if you look at the well, — I don't think that, that any court has suggested that the complete absence of a protected group in that kind of number wouldn't give rise to a fair representation claim. That's why this Court, the Michigan <coughs> Court, and many others have said that the absolute disparity test just can't be used in every circumstance. Well, the, uh, it seems, looking at what the Federal Courts have done, they've, all, they've generally used multiple tests. Now, there are several circuits that have — relied on this 10 percent threshold, but it's not necessary for the state to prevail for this court to adopt the 10 percent threshold. I don't. The question I have for you is, that's what you've been advocating, or at least your brief suggested we should. Wouldn't it be better for us to leave this in the hands of the courts to sort of figure out what test is better under what circumstances than us announce a flat rule that would lead to a result like the example that I just used? I, I, understand, I understand that point. The, the reason I'm, I'm suggesting a threshold also is it corresponds to a practical aspect of the application of these rules. The, if you have a sufficiently small absolute disparity, as a matter of probability, it's not likely to affect the actual composition of the pettit jury. Well, I agree that if a, a protected group is 1 percent of the population, that it's not likely that their absence is going to give rise to any flags. Right. I think there is a difference. I, don't, I just don't know statistically where, and we have to leave this in the judgment of the lower courts, as to where between 1 and 9 or 1 and 10 a difference makes sense. And that's what the courts are, are saying, is we can't use one test to determine that. Well, one of the concerns I have is, I, for example, I know in Kent County that if you look at the other distinct groups, look at the 1990 census, for Kent County it was comprised of two point. 
2.9% Latino Americans, 1.1% Asian Americans, and 0.6% Native Americans. Now, if you look at the one month at the place at issue in which Mr. Smith is uh, indicating that there was a 35% comparative disparity for that one month, if that becomes the threshold, the standard used, which the Sixth Circuit concluded was uh, established a violation of the second prong, then if you think about the practical application that for Michigan, for Kent County, if you take your 158 jurors, in that jury pool you'd expect for that one month for there to be four or five Latino Americans, two Asian Americans, and one Native American. What's, what's, wrong, yeah, what's wrong with the rule? What's wrong with what? With the rule, with picking a number, I, I, rather than leaving it up to the uh, courts of appeals or the district courts to uh, use different numbers, different times. I don't want to have to review all of these cases all the time. Why don't we pick a number? Well, I, you want ten, right? That was what. I, yeah, that, yeah. That's, that's been the practice of the courts below. That's why I'm, I'm advocating it. But it does correspond to this idea that below a certain point, absolute disparity will have no practical. For, for example, in this case, the veneer at issue, <clears throat> according to the trial, state trial court, uh, included 60 prospective jurors, and there were three African Americans, which would then constitute five percent. Now, in order for the, that percentage to correspond exactly to the jury-eligible population, it had to have been one or two more African-American jurors a part of that veneer. Well, as a matter of probability, if you have 12 being selected from 60, this is kind of your point, Justice Breyer, that it's, not, it's more likely than not that would have no effect on the actual selection of the pettit jury. You know, the one thing I learned from the urn business is it never turns out the way you think. <laughs> Like, for example, it had the example of like the eight, that there, there are eight out of a hundred, and you run, you run this thing a thousand times, and you'll discover that there is one black juror, uh, on about half the juries, or a third anyway. That's much more than I would have thought intuitively. And well, I might not have even read the example correctly. So, so, so you see why I, I, I'm at sea as soon as you tell me to be a statistician. I even got a book called Statistician for Lawyers. That didn't help me very much. <laughs> why Las Vegas makes a profit, right? <laughs> well, it does depend, doesn't it, uh, on the size of the uh, uh, the urn, and that's the, the, in other words, if it's a smaller, if it, if it's 10,000 of these balls and you're going to go through it 10,000 times, it's more likely that you're going to get a sample that <laughs> reflects the overall percentage, correct? I think that's right. What, one of the, one of the, the reasons also, talking about this 10 percent as a rule, is that if you, if you look through these cases, you'll see a lot of, a lot of the courts on direct review, and I, and I think, I want to come back to this point that this, of course, is an AEDPA case, so the question is whether the Michigan Supreme Court acted unreasonably. And so I think there's a different standard, that it doesn't have to have gotten it right. It had to have been objectively unreasonable. But setting that aside, you'll, you'll find many cases in which uh, there are disparities of 5% and 7% which have been rejected. And the reason is you have neutral processes, processes that everyone would agree are reasonable on their face, which result in disparities for distinct groups. Are, are, you, are you saying that systematic exclusion, and we're assuming good faith, no intent right. to discriminate, that systematic exclusion is always proven or disproven by statistics? No, I, I'm making just the, the opposite point, that uh, under the third... Uh, well, I'm sorry. And I'll, I'll, I'll allow you to answer, of course, but... Um, if not, how do we show systematic exclusion, again, assuming uh, good faith, no intent to discriminate? The Dern case involved a categorical distinction, meaning uh, women were exempted in a different way than men. Women had an automatic exemption. This Court didn't delineate in Dern that if you had just a disparate impact based on a neutral process, that that would be sufficient to give rise to systematic exclusion. And that's really been the way the federal courts have applied it on direct review. That the, the statistical issue is very interesting, but I, I wonder, if we were not looking at this through EDPA, why, we, why a court should necessarily have to start with the question, with the elements of the prima facie, with the question of whether there is uh, unconstitutional underrepresentation, when in the end, uh, as I understand, Doran, the defendant has to identify some aspect of the jury selection process that has a disproportionate impact on the group involved and is unreasonable. And unless 
that can be done at the outset. Why struggle with these statistics? Now, here, to illustrate the aspect of the jury selection process that the Sixth Circuit thought was unreasonable was the, the prior practice of choosing the jurors first for the district courts, the, the misdemeanor courts, rather than the circuit courts, the, the felony courts. But the, the trial judge seemed to me address this in, in a very thoughtful way, and he said there just isn't any proof that this old system had that effect. And it's hard for me to see how it could have that effect unless the, the number of jurors chosen for the district courts in Grand Rapids was disproportionate to the number chosen for the district courts in the other jurisdictions within the county. So that seems to me to be the end of the case. And why does it make sense to, to struggle with this rather complicated statistical problem if at the end of the day it's going to come down to something uh, of that nature? I think that may be the easiest way to resolve this case, because under the third prong, the Michigan Supreme Court, on the question of jury assignment, concluded that Mr. Smith had failed to factually show that there was any, any underrepresentation that arose from that Did, process. Didn't the Michigan Supreme Court do essentially what Justice Alito suggested, that they said, we'll give you the benefit of the doubt, go on to the third? But on that third, it seems to me there's nothing that shows us what was the representation in the district before they made the change vis-a-vis the circuit courts? Was the, 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 uh, the information that Mr. Smith's expert provided is he, he had — there were two uh, jury terms that were described. One, for six months in which this juror assignment to the local courts first occurred, and then one year for the following year in which the jury assignment did not send him to the local courts first. So you have — two different pools that are being compared. The, if you look at page 13 of the blue brief, it outlines what the disparity was, according to Mr. Smith's expert, uh, for the time in which the assignment to local courts occurred. And it, uh, for, for in that diagram, it shows at the end that there was an 18 percent comparative disparity. And that's the final column in the totals. Now, that's what occurred at the time in which the jury assignment to the local courts occurred first. The following year, the comparative disparity was 15 percent, where the, where the jurors were not sent to local courts first. In other words, there was a difference of a 3 percent comparative disparity. Now, no one suggests that a 3 percent comparative disparity could, uh, to, could justify a claim of a violation of Durant. It's, it's not statistically significant, because when you're talking about 3 percent comparative disparity or 4 percent comparative disparity, you're talking about two or three jurors over the entire time period. And that's in the, in the circuit court. Do we know what the figures were just for the district court? No, there, there was no information. What, the, the reason the Michigan Supreme Court ultimately rejected the claim on the jury assignment process because there was no evidence other than anecdotal testimony about how sending jurors to local courts would result in a deficiency of uh, African-Americans in the circuit court or the felony court courts. So that was the basis. They, so in a way, this touches on Wood versus Allen. It was a factual determination whether it's under 2254 D2 or 2254 E1. The Michigan Supreme Court's conclusion that Mr. Smith had failed to show factually that there was any underrepresentation that arose from the jury assignment process is entitled to deference. But, but what, isn't it possible, and it's awfully hard to get these percentages when you get small numbers, as you do, but isn't, doesn't it seem intuitively obvious that if you give the uh, district courts first crack of, of the size of the pool that has more of the African-American uh, potential jurors in it than the other, it's, it's bound to have an impact. No, there's, there's no, there's no logical necessity that sending courts because you understand that you have the entire county, and the county is then broken up into districts. Right. And the districts are the local courts, and they are misdemeanor courts. But there's a much hi- a higher percentage of African Americans in Grand Rapids than there is in the county as a whole. That's right. But all those other outlying areas also have to send their jurors to the district court first, too. It's not like it's just one segment gets sent to the district court. All of the jurors get sent to the district courts first. The only the, — the, the proof requires to show that somehow the district court — for Grand Rapids went through more jurors than but, did the other local courts. the jurors that served on the district court, were they, were they taken from the entire county, too, or just from Grand Rapids? No, they were t- — all of the — all of the district courts, Grand Rapids, Rock, 
Rockford, all of these small municipalities drew from the circuit court pool. So the district court jurors could, could include as many jurors who are not from Grand Rapids as they could from Grand Rapids. Exactly. In other words, the, the proof. Well, I'm sorry. That, I'm confused. Okay. I thought it was the other way around. I thought Grand Rapids gave however many, you know, 30 percent to the, the, the pool and then took Grand Rapids people back. It does take Grand Rapids people. That's right. So let's oh. what happens. See, you're drawing from the entire county. I'm sorry if I, yeah. if I, if I missed uh, I've well, stated it in a way that's I'm, misleading. I'm, I'm I apparently we're not communicating correctly. All of the jurors from the entire county are drawn into one pool. Right. And then the, the local courts can identify those people that came from within their jurisdiction and draw them out. So the, Everyone does it. So the jurors who served on the district court were primarily from Grand Rapids rather than Kent, uh, Kent County as a whole. The, uh, there's no information to, to in the record. Let me just ask you to a factual question. Could the point put on the district court jurors who did not come from Grand Rapids? No. The, the, the district court for Grand Rapids had to be Grand Rapids residents. So You're then exactly in, right. inevitably, if you give the district court uh, jurors first, to, a, a pool of uh, African-American jurors is going to be larger serving in the district court than in the, in the felony court. It all depends on the local courts and their usage of jurors. If, if Grand Rapids actually required fewer jurors, it would, re, would result in a larger number of African Americans being present on the circuit court. The whole concept underlying the claim that the, this had a disproportionate effect is the idea that Grand Rapids must have needed proportionately more jurors than the okay, other local so courts. Okay, so is there anybody who said whether if all they all take their jurors first, the districts? And Grand Rapids uses a higher percentage of jurors, so now they're and they have more of the black uh, jurors, so that there are fewer left over. That's, and that would be the that, that could be. Now, is there any in this record? Does anybody say whether that's okay or not? I mean, to to, to have people serve jury duty near where they live, uh, or nearer where they live, on its face is not so bad. Did, any, did anybody say whether this is good or bad? Well, I, there wasn't really testimony whether it was good or bad. The, the, the anecdotal information was that it, it uh, took African-American jurors out of the larger pool. The anecdotal information from the court administrator was we were afraid this process was draining, siphoning was the language, siphoning jurors from the circuit court. Well, you have to be a, a, a resident of the district in order to serve as a juror in the district court? Yes. You have to be? That's right. So then if this system were not in effect... And if Grand Rapids had to take white jurors from other counties, as opposed to the larger percentage of black jurors from Grand Rapids, then you'd have a claim in Grand Rapids, wouldn't you? It would create a problem in Grand Rapids, that's well, right. Well, you, you, you'd have a jury pool in Grand Rapids that wouldn't reflect the larger number of blacks in Grand Rapids. That's exactly so you're damned if you do and damned if you don't, right? I think that's right. So, so do we have any evidence in the record that I gather this whole claim depends upon Grand Rapids having more need for jurors per capita than every, anywhere else. That's exactly right. So do we have any evidence in the record that that's the case? N nothing other than the anecdotal testimony. Like, for example, the court administrator said, it is believed that this process results in a reduction in the number of, of jurors, of, of African-American jurors. I would suppose that's something we can find out pretty easily, right? I mean, you look and see how many jurors are pulled for how many jurors Grand Rapids needs in a particular period. That's compare right. Compare it to how many jurors Rockland needs. Right. And that information was not provided. And that's one of the reasons the Michigan Supreme Court rejected the claim factually, that it had not been demonstrated. And, in fact, if you look at the information that Mr. Smith's expert put forward, it really confirms that the, even the best showing for Mr. Smith is a very small correlation. I mean, you're talking about a 3 or 4 percent comparative disparity. Let me get that. If a procedure routinely uh, results in statistical <coughs> underrepresentation that is significant, is that not a clear showing of systematic exclusion? It would have to be significant, and I don't think it's. But I yeah, no, that's, that's a hypothetical. Oh, if, if routinely it results in significant underrepresentation, then that is automatically systematic exclusion? Not, not under my reading of Duran, and I don't think that would be — I don't think that's the, the proper rule. And, I, and then they the would not have to have gone on to the systemic issue because the disparity was so marked just on the 
just on the numbers. Right. I don't think the numbers were sufficient to justify. Well, isn't but the under — I'm trying to think about the third prong of, right. of, um, of Dern. Isn't — if it's routine and it's predictable and it's constant — isn't that always due to systematic exclusion? And that's the argument being raised by Mr. Smith. No, I think the answer is no. And the reason I say that is this. You have — the federal courts on direct review have looked at voter registration and challenges to voter registration. Voter registration may have a disparate or affect distinct groups differently. In the same way that the Second and Tenth Circuit have looked at cases where they fail to follow up on non-returns. That, if you don't follow up on non-returns, it may affect distinct groups differently. The analysis of the federal courts on that issue has been that the decisions to exempt yourself from jury service or the failure to respond to an invitation for jury service is outside the system, even if it occurs regularly and is persistent. It's still not inherent in the process. That's what the Michigan Supreme Court said here about the excuses for hardship and, and transportation uh, for the excuses but it, it's also true that the process by which you select jurors in district courts is not something that uh, is a systematic exclusion of anyone. It's on its face. It is neutral. And if you — if this Court concludes that neutral practices like sending out, using a certain body, whether voter registration or if it's driver's licenses and Michigan identification cards, or not following up on non-returns or allowing excuses — uh, for hardship or, uh, or assigning jurors to a district court first, if that is, can result in systematic exclusion, what's going to happen is that all these neutral processes that Michigan has may result in disparities. And so as it stands now, Kent County doesn't identify the race and ethnicity of all of its jurors. Well, it's going to have to, if it's going to have to have this perfect correspondence of the jury-eligible population, it will no longer have this kind of blind neutrality. But, but concluding that it's systematic doesn't mean that the defendant wins. It just means that the state has to, uh, has to justify the, the, the mechanism that's causing, the, uh, that's causing this, this situation. Right? That's true. There is, there is then the rebuttal. But then what happens is you are subject to these challenges the question is, does a court, does the, does the state ever wish, ever wish to be in a position of having to be subject to the challenge? But, but I think I want to come back to one of the prevailing points of all of this is that this is also the Michigan Supreme Court. There's no question that it had reached the merits and was entitled to epidefference. And the, quest, the question was, was there adequate guidance to the state of Michigan to know that this was both systematic, that this was systematic exclusion and inherent in the process? And Duran was not clear on that point. The, the, the analysis of the Michigan courts really corresponds quite closely to what the federal courts have done, so it cannot be objectively unreasonable. And One point of information, what is a Michigan ID? Oh, what happens if you don't have a — some people don't have a right to a driver's license, so you can still obtain an identification card even if you're not able to drive. So it's try to get as wide a group as possible for your pool of jurors. And if there May I ask no this factual question? Am I correct in understanding that Michigan, in fact, has changed the practice with regard to giving priority to — That's right. Yeah. That's right. Thank you, Counsel. Mr. Lawrence? Okay. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, if the annual jury call of minorities at the courthouse in Grand Rapids is down by 7.28 percent of the total number of jurors called, uh, that means if it happens in Detroit, that means almost nothing. But if it happens in Grand Rapids, that's every minority. The petitioner's goal is to have this court enshrine into law a rule that the two situations are exactly the same. If you had a community with one African-American, your argument would be the same, if that's the disparity. It means every, every minority is left off the jury. Well, I think that certainly uh, if you adopt the uh, petitioner's test for 60 percent of the country, uh, Duran would not apply regarding African-Americans. Ninety percent of the country wouldn't apply to Hispanics. And Duran protections would never apply to Native Americans I guess anywhere. I, I guess I'm echoing Justice Stevens's question of whether or not this type of statistical analysis really works when you're dealing with relatively small numbers. Well, I would uh, make this observation that in Duran v. Missouri, on page 366, 
the Court stated, his undisputed demonstration that a large discrepancy occurred not just occasionally, but in every weekly veneer for a period of nearly a year, manifestly indicates that the cause of the representation was systematic, that is, inherent in the particular jury selection yes, process. Yes, but there you were dealing with an express exemption. There was an exemption for a woman, and also in the record was that the jury clerk was sending out notices saying, women, if you do not wish to serve, return the summons to the judge, named on the reverse side, as quickly as possible, and then further, systematic, if the card was not returned, if a card sent to a woman was not returned, it was automatically assumed that she did not wish to serve. There was no follow-up. So there was all kinds of evidence of systematic problems in Duran that are not present here. Uh, well, first of all, that's completely correct. However, the rule in Duran, the U.S. Supreme Court stated that the numbers alone prove systematic. Then the where, court Where did du- the court say that? On page 366. And then... Uh, in the court went on to say that uh, the state is arguing that uh, there's various neutral, benign reasons for the underrepresentation. Excuse me. If, if that statement is true, then, then there is there's no third part to the three-part test. I thought Duren established a three-part test. It and, did. and the third one was that you had to establish, after having already established the disparity, you had to establish that there was a selection process which caused the disparity. And you're telling us that you don't have to proceed to step three. Once you show the disparity, it is assumed that it is the product of the system. Uh, well, Justice Scalia, my reading of Durin does indeed include that third test, but the problem is, is that Durin puts the burden of proof on that test on the state. They said at pages 368 to 369 that the state is claiming there were all sorts of neutral, legitimate reasons for the underrepresentation. Oh, that was after, that was after showing the systematic factors. It was the plaintiff's burden, or the defendant in the case, Duren, burden to show there was a systematic factor. That was the automatic exception for a woman and how it worked in practice. After all of that, then, Justice White tells us, the state could still come back and say, yes, that's true, but there were other reasons why women didn't show up. Uh, Maybe they were um, disproportionately elderly, or maybe they were involved with child care. That's what that's what Duran said. The, the um, showing a systematic factor was the plaintiff's burden, and then the state could justify why the numbers came out that way. Well, we did show a number of systematic factors, but if you look at Duran itself, on page 366, it says the numbers alone proved it. On further on 366, they stated that How do you reconcile that with the third test? Please tell me how you reconcile that statement with the fact that it did set forth a a three-pronged test. Well, I believe that we met the three-pronged test, but I feel that it is uh, an error in reading Doran to say anything other than that. The state must show how this came about, not the defendant. Where well, we did that? show it. And Where does it say that? And it says that at pages 368 to 369. And uh, the uh, — It says that the state has to show that it has a reason, a good reason for the, the aspect of the selection process that has been identified as causing — the disparity, but does it say that it's the state's obligation to go through every factor that may cause the disparity and justify every one, or is it the defendant's obligation to point to some aspect of 
the selection process of the of the of the system that causes the disparity. Then, once the defendant identifies that, then the state can show, if it can, can try to show that there's a, a good reason for it. Well, I would read one sentence from Durin if I could. Assuming arguendo that the exemptions mentioned by the court below would justify failure to achieve a fair community cross-section on jury veneers, the state must demonstrate that these exemptions caused the underrepresentation complained of. And I think that all of the courts all along the way, including Michigan's Supreme Court, have overlooked that important principle. Do I understand your siphoning theory to depend upon Grand Rapids drawing a disproportionate number of jurors from the pool? That is — That results in fewer minorities going up to the county court, right? That's right, because those jurors that were pulled out for district court — Many of them did not serve in district court. The majority did not, but they were still removed, removed from, from, the, from the overall pool. Where, where in the record is it established that Grand Rapids had a disproportionate need for jurors from the pool? Uh, I don't believe either side established that. Well, if, it's, if your theory depends upon Grand Rapids drawing a disproportionate number, and it is not in the record that Grand Rapids drew a disproportionate number, I think that means you lose. Well, I would respectfully disagree with the Court because it is not necessary, in our view, that each specific item that led to underrepresentation be itself something that's unconstitutional, but rather the collective nature of it that 15 out of 17 months persistently and repeatedly came up with substantial underrepresentation. You're talking about 34.8 percent. But that's the only factor that the the Sixth Circuit identified as illegitimate was this was this uh, siphoning system. Well, I feel everything else, didn't it? I feel that there are a number of factors. I suppose that uh, we could do it on the basis of height and then be surprised when there's fewer women on the jury. Why, why is it? I'm just not clear in my mind. Why is this siphoning bad? My, my, my impression, which may be wrong, is oh. you have a thousand people in the room, let's say, and uh, if you let the district courts choose first, people will serve nearer where they live. Now, now, and uh, so most of them would rather serve nearer where they live. And the result of that could be, for the reasons that was stated, that then there are fewer minorities on the more general jurors that draw from a wider area. And, and I, I don't know about the merits of that. I mean, I see a negative and I see a positive. So is it, it doesn't seem to me obviously bad, nor is it obviously good. So what well, should I do? Well, the record showed what? that the people who were actually showing up for the uh, jury panels at circuit court were very heavily overrepresented in the rural areas of Kent County and heavily underrepresented. Well, I would judge that, but that's just the explanation of the right. problem well, we're I guess seeing. The problem we're seeing is that if Grand Rapids has a higher jury utilization rate and they have a higher minority population, then you will end up with the leftover juries having a lower minority population. Now, the explanation for that is that you choose the district judges for you choose the district jurors first and my question to you is i, I if you're just a i'm not uh, instructed in this area if you were just to tell me what do i think of that i'd say i'm not sure uh, uh, i think you have fewer minorities that's true but people get to serve closer to home now now can you enlighten me a little bit about yes this? well first of all uh, Grand Rapids has several district courts, and the largest one is the district court for the city of Grand Rapids. And as one would predict, the judicial business of a large city is certainly going to be more extensive than the judicial business in of rural course, areas. Of course, but we have to look at this on a proportional basis, right? Grand Rapids is also sending a higher number of jurors to the pool than, than the small rural county. 
Well, your, st- your theory depends upon Grand Rapids drawing not just a proportional number, if it's contributing 30 percent and it draws 30 percent. Your theory depends upon Grand Rapids contributing 30 percent to the pool and drawing 40 percent. Well, I guess I would simply say that the court administrator testified and the district judge found that they had substantial underrepresentation that was very noticeable, very visible, a severe problem. And after my client's trial, they, they concluded that the best way of dealing with this was to end the siphoning and process, so what it, which what they did. did it result in? It resulted over a six-month period in a difference between 18 percent underrepresentation and 15 percent. And your adversary says that's not statistically meaningful difference, that 3 percent, because it only takes a difference of a couple of people to change it from 18 to 15. Well, what's on, What's unreasonable about that argument? Well, I have two answers to that. Uh, The first one being that uh, what one thing that was eliminated was the spikes, like we had in my client's month, 34.8, even though the average underrepresentation was only 18.1. You can't — you're comparing apples and oranges because your pre-spike was over a year — and your post-spike was over six months, we don't know what would have happened or didn't have statistics of, of a year or longer. Okay. Well, in the case of Duran, you're talking about they had uh, a 10-month period that was involved. Uh, but as for the numbers being small, I can only refer you to cases that I very much disagree with. United States versus Sanchez Lopez cited in my brief where Hispanics comprised 5.59 percent of the Southern District of Idaho, and the Court basically said, since that's less than 10 percent, who cares if there are Hispanics on the juries? The same in United States. I wouldn't say that, but I, I, I still haven't. I'll try again. Forget the cases. As I'm hearing this, all I'm hearing is, well, if you let the if you, if you say that the, the wider area should choose first, you will get a, a higher number of minorities, but very tiny number. I mean, a very small addition, one or two people. And if you do it the way they're doing it, you'll lose those one or two people, but you will let people serve closer to home. So I just think as a, as a person, not as a judge. That's why I'm letting you answer it as a judge. <laughs> but, but, I mean, I'd say, well, it doesn't sound like much of a big deal. And, and I do see an advantage in this, uh, of the way they're doing it. So now you tell me what's, what's wrong with that. Okay. Well, first of all, Kent County is not really that big. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's anybody can drive from the farthest end of the county to downtown Grand Rapids in approximately 20 to 30 minutes. It wouldn't be that difficult to get there. I bet members of this court have a longer commute. But uh, more importantly, the, uh, the fact that you're only talking about 25 people out of 2,250 people <coughs> simply means that the problem will be easy for court administrators to solve if they have an incentive to do it. How is that? Don't those people then have to become professional jurors? They have to serve on every jury, or you're going to have the disproportion uh, (coughs) that the statistics show? Well, the statistics showed, for example, that uh, African Americans had a much higher rate of not having an automobile. And so if you say, well, if you have trouble getting a ride, you could tell somebody, come on down anyway, or you can say, that's all right, take the day off. And if African Americans have a very substantial higher rate of single-parent households, well, then, of course, it's going to be harder to get a babysitter. Now, you can tell those people, well, that's okay, stay home, or you can say, try to get down here anyway. And the court uh, 
And if somebody simply didn't show up, statistics have shown uh, in May the brief. I stop you there for a moment? Because it, one of the things that uh, was in the Duran opinion was that a child care excuse would be okay. I think Justice White said at the end, now I'm not touching the typical hardship excuses. And one of them was child care. And that is certainly in the early 70s was going to disproportionately affect women. You'd have far fewer women if you give a child care exemption. Uh, No doubt that that's true. And I am not saying that it is wrong to give real hardship exemptions. Here, but this was, he wasn't talking about individual cases. Uh, well, in this case, one of the things that happened is that if somebody didn't, simply didn't show up, that's it. Now, judges, the court administrator said, yes, we tried. The judges would issue orders to show cause, but the police department made a decision that they were not going to have anything to do with the serving or participation in these orders to show cause, orders to show up. And isn't that police department decision part of the system? It is systematic. When the police tell the courts what to do, shouldn't the courts tell the police what to do? Let me make sure I understand your position. Assume that there is an identical, identifiable disparity of 2 or 3 percent or whatever it might be to get the threshold of being significant. It's entirely caused by the fact that the members of the minority have personal excuses that justify uh, non-service. What do you do with that case? Do you find that it's unconstitutional or don't you? If you find that it is persistent, it is month in and it's month out, then you have a problem because society benefits when jurors are drawn from the broadest spectrum of the society. That's policy. Can't you say that that is systematic exclusion because it's part of the system? Well, it is an unconstitutional exclusion, what I'm trying to find out. Society benefits because if, if you make them serve, but society benefits if you grant the excuses, too. Well, Overall, uh, there's nothing wrong with granting excuses for genuine hardship. However, when you have this factor and factor two and factor three and factor four, and they persistently come up with all-white juries, that's what Richard Hillary testified to, 98 percent of the time, nothing but all-white juries. And if somebody — Is there there a federal district — that corresponds to this um, Kent County. Is it a federal district court that would be uh, calling jurors in, a, in the same geographical area? Well, there is the United States District Court for the Western District of Michigan that uh, covers a very large amount of territory. And frankly, I have not studied their statistics, but Uh, I know from personal knowledge that the African-American population in the Western District of Michigan would be smaller than in Kent County or in the city of Grand Rapids. You don't have have comparable comparable records for what was going on in the the district court. Well, uh, if you mean the United States District Court, uh, no, I — I have not studied that situation. Are there, are there courts that you know of that do what you're suggesting needs to be done? When a juror doesn't show up, the judge issues a bench warrant and, and the police are sent out to arrest the person and drag the person into court, or somebody says, I'm a single parent and I have children and I'm too poor to have a, a nanny or an au pair and therefore please excuse me, and they say, no, you have to find some way of getting here. Are there courts that do that? Uh, I don't know of a court that arrests people. And in this case, it wasn't a question of arresting. The local judges made a decision. We're going to issue orders to show cause. People will be required to come in. Uh, The police decided, no, we're not going to have anything to do with that. And I feel that that's part of the system because the police are part of the system. Mr. Sterling, I don't — you seem to acknowledge that — 
to make your case, you have to show that Grand Rapids District drew from the pool a disproportionate number of people. Why, why do you have to prove that? Uh, if Grand Rapids contributes to the pool an inordinate disproportionate number of the minority, blacks in this case, even if Grand Rapids simply took back a proportionate number from the pool, it would still have a disproportionate effect on reducing the number of blacks in the overall pool, wouldn't it? In order to solve this problem, all that Kent County would have to do uh, is to, uh, if you take people to district court, put back the ones that aren't being used. That would certainly help. But instead, they take an excess number like any court does, but the excess people are totally removed from the system. Your Your answer to Justice Scalia's question is is no, right? Because the idea is if Grand Rapids sends up a pool that's 30 percent minority, and if it takes back the same number as everybody else, it's going to get — the the county is going to get the same proportion. It's only when they take back more. They have the more heavily uh, African-American pool and they're going to draw from it more than everybody else is drawing from theirs. So there will be fewer African-Americans to go to the county. Uh, that is what's happening, but I don't believe But you that. have no evidence that Grand Rapids takes back more than its share proportionally than anybody else. We know that the, as soon as they stopped doing it, uh, this created a substantial increase in the number of African Americans on the juries, and I think that that's at the county level. At the county yeah. level, it, it, was there any evidence that your veneer, uh, that minorities were underrepresented on your veneer? Yes. Where is that in the record? Okay. Uh, the uh, uh, well, it is in the testimony of well, if you look, it's. I'm sorry that I don't have the page number, but right at the time, it was said, we have two or three African Americans within this group that was either 60 or 100. And I'm sorry that the record is less clear, but even if it is three out of 60, you're talking about 5 percent, whereas the population is 7.28 percent. If it just happens once or twice, help me, help not me, a problem. Help but it happens every month. Help me with the math. If there were one more African-American, what would the percentage be? Uh, <laughs> Pretty close to what you're saying it should be, right? Uh, if there were two more, it would be right on target. Just it would be only 0.28 percent low, which if you simply send out a second letter, because the testimony of Kim Foster was that later on, when they started sending out the second letter, half of the people who did not respond would respond. Can we go back to your point about that there was a big change when the draw came from the circuit first before the districts? I thought it was agreed that before there was an 18 percent on average comparative difference and after 15 percent. That doesn't sound like a big change. But it's a step in the right direction. And what we want to do is we want to promote more minority participation on jurors, juries, instead of creating a rule that tells court administrators all over the country the heat's off. But a a step in the right direction is not enough. You were adducing that to prove that the prior system had a significant effect. And it turned out it didn't have a very significant effect. It doesn't prove your point to say, well, it's a step in the right direction. If it's insignificant, it's insignificant. Whether it's insignificant in the right direction or the wrong direction doesn't matter. Well, one element of the entire system might be insignificant, but you're talking about numerous elements that went together. And Duran says they have to show what caused the underrepresentation. I, I still don't — I don't understand this problem of, of — of, you, you have to show that they took back more than they contributed. Let's assume that Grand Rapids is 
is entirely black, and its entire delegation that goes to the pool are all black, okay? And let's assume that those blacks are 10 percent of the, uh, the totality. There are no blacks from anywhere else, okay? Then Grand Rapids takes back simply the number of people it's, it, it took, it said, which would be 10 percent, and it takes, black, takes back all of the blacks who were the Grand Rapids residents. All of the other d- districts would thereby have 0 percent blacks instead of 10 percent, which is what they ought to have. Each district, the uh, jurors are uh, acquired from that district. Exactly. And the circuit is acquired from all the districts. Exactly. So why expect the other districts to have 10 percent blacks simply because Grand Rapids contributed 10 percent of the totality, all of whom were black. There, then there's a requirement for each district to have 10 percent blacks, right? But if Grand Rapids takes back its, uh, its, the people it sent, there are no more blacks left to go around. Well, I don't expect those outlying districts to have uh, more, a larger percentage of blacks than the population. I'm only expecting that from the county. Isn't it the case? What is if, uh, if, uh, if Grand, if Grand Rapids uses a disproportionate number of jurors in its district courts, then you are going to have this problem. Uh, the only way to fix the problem would be to have a separate jury system for the district courts. If you have the, the circuit courts going first, then the people in the district courts are going to have the problem that you identify. If you have a system in which it's all done randomly, circuit court, district court, the people who come toward the end are going to have the problem. So I don't see any way out of this if, in fact, there was a statistical basis for it, other than having a separate selection process for the district courts. Is that what you think is necessary? I think that we should allow a great deal of flexibility to local court administrators. Uh, As I mentioned in the brief, in the parents involved in community schools case, there was a discussion in the concurrence by Justice Kennedy about exactly what local governments do to to get an appropriate uh, representation of minorities without using racial that classification. That was a question of what was permitted. Here you're trying to say this is required. Uh, the school's case was these are measures the district could take if it wanted to. But you're saying these are measures the district must take because the Constitution requires it, the quite different settings. Well, I admit that it is a different setting. However, I feel, well, no, I won't say I feel. (coughs) Durin holds that there must be a reasonable connection between the African Americans that appear on the jury arrays and the population as a whole. What about just, the more I listen, the more I think you think there are a lot of things people could do. They could send three letters. They could explain in the letters why it's important to come. Uh, they could try reversing the thing a little bit with the uh, districts first or not first. That, all kinds of things. But what? It, but now you, you're forcing them into this legal rubric. So what about a decision, which you wouldn't, wouldn't like probably, but it would say we can't say that they're unreasonable in respect to not having all of these, but they're, uh, who knows, <laughs> you know, when they get around and others try them, etc. In other words, Unreasonable, reasonable is one standard, and and ambiguity plays a a role here, too, that might be helpful. Well, uh, you're certainly correct, and I would simply say that the people of Grand Rapids looked up at the juries. Ninety-eight percent of the time, they saw nothing but white faces. I think that Durin requires that the local system do something about it. There's a lot of options. That we should give them flexibility. Thank you, Counsel. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, Mr. Restucia, you have two minutes remaining. I just have two brief points. One is that I want to just remind the Court that it, this is a case under EDPA review, so that it, the Michigan Supreme Court has to be not just uh, incorrect, it has to be objectively unreasonable. And 
its conclusion, I think the, probably the easiest analysis here is the, the conclusion that there was no showing of systematic exclusion because Mr. Smith failed to show that there was any underrepresentation that arose from the jury assignment process. That's probably one of the strongest points because if you look at the 3 percent comparative disparity, that's less than half of 1 percent absolute disparity. It's, it's, no one claims that that's statistically significant. So I think whether it's reviewed under 2254-D2 or 2254-E1, this Court should reverse. Thank you. Thank you, Counsel. Counsel, the case is submitted.